What's up, everyone? Really great to have you here. Excited to get into this topic specifically. Um, the title is the Catch-22 of Attribution and how B2B marketers should respond. Appreciate all you tuning in here live. This will also be available on the podcast and YouTube tomorrow. To get it started, what I want to try and communicate is we've all been there, right? So we've all been in a place where we were challenged by attribution, Tom and I included. My time when I was challenged by attribution ended around 2016, 17, when I started to figure these things out. But I have a ton of empathy and I, I interact with a ton of marketers that haven't moved over that hump into what I would consider like the sort of like the next frontier of how to handle um, marketing and attribution in B2B. And so if there's anything that we can do, I'm sure we're going to provide some data and some statements and other things like that that might help you get over that. But if there's anything that you would like to ask specifically, please let us know in the chat and we might bring you on for a live question toward the end of the episode. And so Tom, uh, we're joined by Tom Wentworth, CMO at Recorded Future. He's been on the, uh, the State of Demand Gen podcast before, is um, talking about a lot of amazing things in marketing that I totally agree with. Some would call it progressive. Other people would just call it <laughs> what, what, what should be happening um, today. So Tom, great to have you here. We're going to get it started. I was reading a blog that you wrote a, a couple months ago. And what you were, when we were getting on the topic of attribution, what you said was, if you're hitting your numbers, nobody cares about attribution. When it breaks down is when you're not hitting your numbers. And would love for you to elaborate on, on how that works inside of B2B companies. I've experienced that myself as well. Yeah, Mike. So thanks for having me. This is a pretty cool experience. I'm a little bit intimidated, not going to lie. But I have a really fancy mic, so that should cover up for my uh, my intimidation, I think. My first experience with negative experience with attribution was a couple of jobs ago where literally we would fight marketing, sales, and partner over who sourced deals because it would have impacts on firing. It would have impacts on investment. It became what I call this Hunger Games situation where you would literally have to do Salesforce forensic accounting to try to get to what was a source. And you know the partner team, in my case, had this ability to basically trump anything. Because the minute a partner team person said, well, I brought this deal, no matter what the data said, partner team got credit for it. And it created this incredibly awful dynamic among the go-to-market team. And I've since vowed to never, ever let that happen again, to be in a situation where... The business is going well, but you have this situation where teams are fighting for credit unnaturally, creating unnatural tension in the business, and everyone ended up hating each other over this silly topic of attribution. It was crazy. Totally. And so let's talk through when what happens when the you're not hitting your goals, because that's where it starts to lean into the investment, right? So you're not hitting your goals. So executives get in a boardroom and they're saying, where where's everything going wrong? Let's look at the data, yeah. right? And so then they're like, let's go look at the data. And then they go and look at all the data and then they make decisions on how to make investments, what teams to continue to scale, what activities to stop doing based on attribution data, which we all know is incredibly incomplete. Yeah, you and I both agree on this. I blame marketing automation vendors because marketing automation vendors told us to have a seat at the revenue table we needed to prove down to the dollar the impact that we're having, which of course sounds great. But the reality is the only way that you can do that, especially given the limitations of modern attribution, is to do specific types of investments that are easy to prove that may or may not be the things that should earn you a seat at that proverbial revenue table. So I remember falling in love with what HubSpot would write about or what Marketo would write about. And I would do all of those things to earn my seat. And then I realized that, that was a pretty dumb thing for me to do in retrospect because I wasn't doing marketing. I was, I was doing direct response advertising and those are different things. Mm -hmm. And just contact acquisition in order to get first touch attribution <laughs> in order to, at some point, if that deal closes, that you have the first touch, right? That kind of leads into the next point that I wanted to go through, which is I, I see this mistake a ton which is, and you sort of lead, uh, led into it, which is that marketers get so focused on tracking stuff 
that they lose sight of whether or not things are actually driving revenue, whether yeah. they're actually working. A lot of marketers never even look at revenue. They Their su- success KPI is leads. And the second point of this is that if you're so obsessed with tracking things, it eliminates this whole suite of marketing activities that you could do that actually drive the best results. Yeah. Right. And that was my number one failure as a CMO a couple of jobs ago was I took that short-term view of, you know, we used to have a whiteboard with a, a picture of a thermometer on it. And it would, you know, we'd set the goal to be our leads target. And we would like fill in the thermometer with leads as we generate them. And we'd celebrate if we hit it. And then the, the sales reps would come over and say, we had a terrible quarter. Our pipeline sucks. Here you are celebrating the, the, the green thermometer when the business isn't growing as fast as we wanted to. And by taking a short-term view of the business, I actually hurt the business in the long term. And I think this company I was at would have gone public had I taken a longer view to a picture of marketing. I was so obsessed with the short term. It was negative to the business. Mm-hmm. I've been there as well, not in a CMO seat, but been there as a you know marketing manager or director of marketing in a very short-term lens as well. So I understand that a lot. Considering attribution, um, I've been talking about a topic a lot recently that a lot of people have responded well to that is called the dark funnel. A lot of people that are talking about yeah. the dark funnel are intent data providers in order to give that. But I look at it in a much different way for marketers, which is that there are tons of places where buyers are discovering, researching, and purchasing products that your attribution software will never track. Yeah. Communities, yeah. text messages, phone calls, DMs, like that all could is put into the word of mouth category, but also podcasts, organic social, paid social that doesn't have direct response conversions, third-party events, PR firms that are earned, like PR that's earned. I could go on for a very long time about all the things that attribution software isn't going to track. And so I'm encouraging marketers to sort of think about attribution in two different ways, where you have the multi-touch attribution software, which is going to favor lower funnel direct response channels, like mainly Google review sites, affiliates, aggregators, things like that. And you need a different measurement mechanism for a lot of the things that you and I like to do that we believe drive way more impact. I think that we're seeing that in both of our businesses. And so I'd love to hear, maybe I'll just let you go on that one. Then I got to follow up. So we do attribution the same way that most people do. We do first touch, last touch, weighted, we look at it. It's it's data that's useful inside marketing. I don't necessarily represent that data outside of marketing because I don't think it particularly matters that much. But when you obsess over attribution, again, you're going to overweight tactics that are easy to attribute, things you can put UTM codes on top of. For example, I work in cybersecurity, so it's a bit unfair. For those of you that have never been in cybersecurity before, the great part about being in this market is that you're, you know, you're able to get top tier media coverage if you have something unique to say. So as an example, today, my company was covered in Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and potentially New York Times in literally a single day, which is crazy. But the thing that we did that, that I thought was really interesting is we built a new site focused just on the cybersecurity market. We hired the best reporters in cybersecurity, and we have them working on this media property called The Record. And I legitimately have no direct way of doing attribution. I've got four people writing stories. I, can, I know what my traffic is. Uh, I know that when we publish stories that we can get as much as 30, 40,000 page views um, on one story. But I couldn't tell you if this site is generating anything, like literally anything. I know it is because this isn't my first rodeo, but I can't prove to my CEO and it doesn't matter because I hear through our sales team. I hear through our partners. I hear direct feedback from customers. Hey, the kind of content and stories you're writing about on the record are incredibly interesting and useful to our business. And that's good enough for me. And I think that's the thing that is really hard is if you're just starting as a marketer, you don't have any confidence. You think you're going to get fired every month. I've been there. It sucks. But that attitude is going to lead you to do things that will actually get you fired. And that's the sort of breakthrough. The thing that will keep you secure in your job are the kind of big thinking ideas that take a little bit of faith. But but if you commit to them three months later, six months later, a year later, you've done something that that really has an impact on your business. We get the exact same effect with our podcast. Right. So our podcast has more than 15,000 listeners globally. When we get on to sales calls, the first thing that people say, or we, hey, we listen to your podcast all the time. 
we get qualitative feedback in terms of messages or comments or other things like that. But when you look inside of HubSpot and it's not nothing about HubSpot, right? You do the same thing with Visible, you do the same thing with any attribution software. And we've done this before, you're going to get a different answer than the podcast. And so that's something that you need to think yeah. about. I, another point that you had mentioned that I want to kind of drive home here is that the point of marketing attribution is so that we understand the levers that we can pull in order to drive better results, yeah. in or, not to prove credit, right? And so when you think about this, using attribution software is just one way to understand whether or not things are working. There are plenty of other like market research methods, qualitative research that you could use as an input to say, okay, this is working. Let's try and continue to pull this lever a little bit more. And so I'm encouraging marketers to sort of like think outside the box about other ways that can that could be measured in order to drive this. So I'll throw out a couple. This is we're kind of getting into how marketers should respond. We might jump back, but I think that in order to fix attribution, marketers need to move outside of just multi-touch attribution software. Multi-touch attribution software is one piece. We've been implementing with companies what I call self-reported attribution. So on your main conversion form that drives most of your revenue, put how did you hear about us and leave an open text box and you're going to get some really interesting answers. We did that data and at least 50% of the submissions between how what the customer reports versus what the multi-touch attribution re reports are different. So it's going to give you a big insight on that. You're going to get word of mouth. You're going to get PR. If you're doing PR, if you're doing any of these activities, you get PR, podcasts, et cetera. The next thing that I'm encouraging people to do is like a third layer would be win analysis. And so whether that's a marketer or somebody else calling the contacts of the close one deals and asking them about their journey, who they researched, how they decided, and also doing that for consider doing that for some of the lost deals because you're going to get a lot of interesting insights about why you're losing and you can get insights for the demographics of maybe maybe we're losing for a fit reason. And the last thing would be to use large scale surveys and other market research to understand how many people are aware of your brand, have affinity to your brand, the category, are thinking about it in a buying cycle, what products they use, other things like that. Those four pieces of marketing, I think, gives a very complete measurement system. And Tom would love if you want to weigh in on that one, but also just, we'll open it up to you about yeah. how just how B2B marketers should respond to the situation overall. Yeah, the thing that works really well at my company is we've got a Slack channel. You know, we have a customer success team. We call them Intel services or intelligence services. They're the ones talking to our customers every day. And we've sort of trained our customer success team to have those conversations with our customers. And when they hear something anecdotal, they share it back in Slack. And we it gives us a chance to celebrate that moment. So a customer you know, might say, Hey, I love this article and the record, the story and the record, this piece of research you published, putting it in Slack and sharing it with the company gives me all the ammunition I need to continue to make big investments in this platform. So it, it comes back down to like, we can try to automate things and, and do things with technology and that's great. But sometimes the best answer is just asking questions, talk to people. And if you get everyone else in your company who talks to customers to ask those types of questions, you're going to get all the ammunition you need to make these bigger brand investments. And so you've been at a lot of different, uh, different companies at an executive level. So would love to understand your honest point of view about how this works at the board level in the boardroom yeah. from an attribution standpoint, because my quality, just like anecdotal understanding about interacting with a ton of executives is that some, some CMOs get it. A lot of them don't. And a lot of most, I would say, executives don't. Yeah. So Recorded Future, we're owned by Insight Partners, a pretty well-known, large private equity company. They have a standard methodology with which they look at portfolio companies. They have a, a standard funnel that they ask all their portfolio companies to fill data into. So I do that. And it's funny, sometimes some of the metrics I track don't nicely fit. Like I don't track MQLs. People freak out when they hear that. I don't know what an MQL is. Like, it's not a number that I report. I can calculate what I think is an MQL, and that's what I report up. And I think it's reasonably close, but it's not a number that we use anywhere else. So I have to, I do have to prevent, provide metrics, funnel, classic funnel metrics, but they're not how I operationally run the day to day of my marketing team. And I've found, again, back to my learning lessons the hard way, when I obsessed on the funnel, it didn't work out. When I didn't obsess in the funnel and just invested in what I thought made sense, the funnel took care of itself. 
Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the metric that my team is really gold on is qualified pipeline creation. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter how many webinars we run or how many MQLs we generate. It is literally, are we creating qualified pipeline? If that is happening, you know, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Would love to uh, go one one way or deeper on the measuring qualified pipeline. How do you attribute it to to marketing? And we do do that. And the number right now, not that I look at this obsessively or not, but the number right now is sixty one percent, which is pretty interesting for an enterprise software company with a high, you know, five figure average sales price. We are able to source 61% first touch attribution. So literally looking at how someone got into our database. It's pretty incredible. I'm used to that number being closer to 20% in enterprise. Um, so that's cool. It also makes, you know, makes it easier to be a CMO when you have a number like that. So we look at qualified pipeline creation. And I look at how much of that comes from things that marketing so first touch sourced. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, whether the number is 61% or 21%, as long as the engine's working, I'm still going to feel good about it. Mm-hmm. 100%. One thing that I was thinking, this uh, kind of goes back to the original statement about people like sort of like fighting over credit is one thing that I implemented in starting around 2018 was instead of calling it like marketing sourced and sales sourced, I just look at it from the buyer's perspective. So yeah. the buyer coming inbound to us or are we going outbound to them? which sort of takes that part away from it. So I would be interested to hear if that's something that you adopt or what you think about it. Yeah. You know, we, it's never, I mean, first touch attribution, like the uh, real thing we deal with is so, you know, marketing brings someone into our database, but are they cold or not? Like a demo request is a different type of interaction than as somebody who consumed content three years ago. And we just happen to resurface through a BDR outbound conversation. So that's why it's never black and white. What is more important, I think, is keeping the rules the same over a long period of time so you can see trends. Mm-hmm. One of the other mistakes I've made that I would encourage you guys never to make ever again is to start changing goals and numbers because then you never have a way to look quarter over quarter, month over month at how things are doing without having like a, a key. Oh, I made this change here. We, we changed our MQL definition here. That stuff becomes impossible to look at over a long period of time. But for me, it's it's more important just to know, as long as we don't change the definition, I know quarter over quarter how things are adjusting. And frankly, for my business, I want marketing to source less. Like 61% is not healthy. You know, we'd love more business to come through other sources like our channel partners. And we've got a bunch of efforts to do that. So, you know, we we just want to make sure that we have consistent, we can follow it consistently quarter over quarter. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about influenced revenue. It hasn't been mentioned here. I think a lot of people that are listening to this recognize that I'm not a huge fan of that metric, but would love to, to understand your thoughts on it and whether or not you're using it at your business right now or if you have in the past. Yeah, we use influence. So we look at first us last touch and then equally weighted across every touch. So the classic, just divide it by... If there are five campaigns that influence something, divide and the... And the, it was a $100,000 deal. Then every campaign gets $20,000 worth of attribution credit. So we look at that. It's predominantly a marketing thing. So our field marketing team can look at an event they ran and get some sense of whether or not it was a good event or not. So I'm not saying attribution isn't useful. It certainly is. And we use attribution. It's just not the board metric that people make it out to be. It's not even really a CEO metric that people make it out to be. It's a way for marketing teams to know what is and isn't having an impact. But yeah, we 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 look at all three of those. I'm more of a first touch person because I think it's important to know how people are coming to you for the first time. And I am very skeptical of the multi-touch weighted attribution stuff because I don't know how valuable it is to know that, you know, we had five campaigns and I divided by five and I got $20,000 of credit. I'm not sure that tells me all that much. When you're seeing... Um like when you're talking first touch, right? There's like a lot of companies that are running in a first touch model is probably not operating the way that you operate. So I want to help people understand this, right? Because when most people have a first touch model and I've been on a first touch model before, and this is exactly what I did because the metrics incentivize you to do it, is just to go out there and acquire as many contacts that you can attribute to marketing. And so how do you help people not, how do you 
get your team to not do that because that's what the metric incentivizes you to do? Yeah, it's a good question. So in our, you know, our first touch attribution is very simple. It's did the, is the lead source a marketing lead source? Was it a, some sort of form fill, a list upload, a demo request, like whatever. So we, and we do kind of classic syndication type programs to build a database. I think the fact that we don't report on MQLs makes it so there's not a ton of incentive just to load the database up with names. The fact that it's only qualified pipeline that we create matters. So you can do a program that generates a thousand leads, but if those don't convert to qualified pipeline, it's not going to help anybody. So I think maybe in our case, it's the removal of the MQL as a metric that we care about that makes sure that even if we do campaigns focused on quantity of names, no one gets to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, at Refine Labs and at several companies that I've worked at before, the way that we do marketing is non-conversion based throughout most of the entire funnel until a high intent conversion. And so therefore, in a lot of cases, the first touch is a demo request, right? Because we're yeah. actually getting, we're getting all of the work done in LinkedIn, podcast, all the other places where you're not going to get a touch of attribution and you haven't identified the contact. So would love to hear um, your thoughts about that. I recognize that most software companies out there right now would never implement this. It's too scary for them. They don't have enough leading metrics. Yeah. We convert our model is pretty, pretty classic. We, we generate interest and we convert the interest through predominantly through our BDR team. So we spend a lot of time with our BDRs trying to understand what are the high intent marketing interactions that we should be focused on. So obviously demo requests are a high intent marketing interaction for us. A lot of our content is focused on educating people on how to do something that is a high intent conversion for us. So I think one of the reasons why we do have a good relationship with our BDR team is that we're not, saying, hey, follow up on these 10 MQLs, we're really trying to give them conversations that show a reasonable level of intent. We also do, we use some ABM software that helps us with intent a little bit. I know you've got some thoughts on that too, but we are, they are not playing a quantity game. They're playing a quality game. And we do not like things like, are they following up with all of our leads is not something we talk about. Like that is not our expectation. Our expectation is, when we generate something that is high intent, that our team will be thorough and rapid in follow-up. And they're fantastic at that. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify for everyone, I'm not against uh, ABM software. However, the best use case that I'm seeing for ABM software right now is to do outbound sales with intent data. I'm not like, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, do, you run, do. do you run marketing out of the ABM platform? We do, we do some campaigns, but the real value of the platform, we use Sixth Sense, and the real value of it for us is just being able to aggregate intent across an account, even with anonymous people, is really cool. So, you know, that way, if somebody's doing research on our site, but not, and partly my logic is I can take forms off my site. I want you reading our content. And a little secret is I do have our ABM tag on our media property, the record. So one of the ways I'm able to get some cool attribution data is I'm able to use Sixth Sense to tell me who's visiting the record and then are those companies converting? And I just did an analysis a couple of weeks ago. Two thirds of the pipeline we've created year to date have visited the record site, our media site in the past 30 days, mm -hmm. which was a pretty cool thing to be able to calculate. But I like intent data just again, as a way to give BDRs, hey, focus on these people because these are accounts that are clearly in market for what we do. Mm-hmm. Sort of off topic, but I, it got me thinking, um, where did BDR, there's been a ton of like polls and other stuff on LinkedIn, do BDRs uh, roll up into marketing at your company or sales? They roll into sales, which is where they should be at my company. I sort of think, you know, that answer is going to depend. I think at Recorded Future in particular, we've got a really great training program where BDRs come in and can become AEs within a reasonable amount of time. And I think that path makes a lot of sense. I think though, there are also cases where, especially if you're an organization that likes to, to promote internally, like we are, I think there are cases where BDRs make sense being in a marketing. It does create more of a closed loop effect. I think the big thing people misunderstand about managing BDRs is it's really about day-to-day, -day, like 
gamifying and there's just so much about how do you get a whole bunch of people who are in their first job ever out of their career to be productive. BDR managers is an incredibly difficult job because you are now having to teach people how to wake up, get dressed in the morning, come in the office, make their phone call, send their emails, do the research. That's a job I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Mm-hmm. One more off topic, but it just got, got me thinking about it. You, you made a LinkedIn post relatively recently and it said, whenever I see VP of marketing and sales as some oh. title, I take a mental note to remember that I'd never want to work at that company. They are different jobs. That got a hundred thousand. I think that might be my number one LinkedIn post. So that's my Chris Walker uh, moment. I was, <laughs> uh, I was LinkedIn famous for a minute. Like, honestly, I would never work for a company that thinks sales and marketing are the same thing and love my sales compatriots, but salespeople are trained to think in the short term. They just don't have the DNA to make the kinds of investments it's going to take. They also have what I call recency bias. So like any great sales rep is going to remember the last great deal they closed and they're going to think everything looks like that last great deal. They're not going to take a step back and look at the short, medium and long term of marketing. I just, I really, if I see anybody in that role and the whole CRO trend, there are a very few CROs that I think can do sales and marketing. There are some. But as a rule, I'm going to be super skeptical of anybody who carries that title too for the same reason. 100%. I see it all the time. There's a couple, like a, I think there's probably a handful, like less than five I can think of on the top of my head of CROs that I think are doing a really good job being able to architect both, even me, right? So like for me, if I was going to go out and someone wanted me to be their CRO, I would say, no, let me be the CMO and go find someone that can really do sales. Right, they're two very different jobs that require different skill sets. Where you, I think, you want true expertise on both sides at the executive level. Yeah, they're these are different jobs with different timeframes, and I think it's it's like for I would be a horrible CRO. I would have no idea. I would forecast everything. I would have happy years. Oh, every deal in my pipeline. Of course, that's going to close. I talk to the buyer. I would be horrible at it. Mm-hmm. Just like a, just like a sales background CRO would have no idea what investing in brand means. Oh, investing in brand. Let's let's get some really great pens out for our next trade show. Awesome. Let's try let's try and reel it back into the topic of attribution. That's on me. I would a little bit out of bounds <laughs> there, but would love. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple questions or topics floating around in your head. Would love to pass it to you if there's something that you want to where uh, you want to take the conversation. I mean, I could just talk forever, man. You know, we've already gone way off topic. <laughs> no, I think the number one thing for me is like if you're. And it's it is the catch twenty two. It's the it's the sort of subject of this whole thing is, on one hand, attribution proves your value, and it's comfort to cling to the numbers because you can always go back to the numbers. But at some point, focusing just on attribution and numbers is not going to get you to where you need to be, and you won't be the kind of marketing leader that you aspire to be unless you can you know blend it. Like in my. In all my presentations, I talk about the short-term, medium-term, and long-term of marketing. In the short-term, I wake up every day thinking about pipeline creation. In the medium-term, I think about, am I equipping my sales team to close opportunities? And in the long-term, I'm thinking about, am I making the kind of brand investments that are going to make my life easier a year from now, or two years from now, or three years from now? Mm-hmm. If you don't do three, you're gonna, it's going to be really hard to do number one and number two. Yeah. And number three is where you get the explosive growth. What's nobody should be confused here. Maybe there's one company out there that sells event management software on the, on the first week that COVID happened that had Google ads do this for them. But for the most part, for most companies, the way that you get the explosive growth growth is on three with the, um, the recorded future or whatever that, that yeah, the record, yeah. our, our podcast, there's several, uh, several other examples that I could point to. And so being able to handle the short and medium term in order to hit the goals that you have today, and while also setting up number three, brand building, where you can ex- in the future exceed goals, exceed targets in, at a, in a huge way, I think that's what's really important. But it takes a certain... The hard part is if you're sitting on this Zoom, you're wondering, like, it's easy for you, Wentworth, you know, fine. But... Like I know what the pressure of hitting your numbers is. If your boss, if your CEO, if whoever you work for doesn't see the long-term side of this, I'm not saying you need to quit your company and find someplace that does, but then your job needs to be to educate your boss or your boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss on what successful companies do who, who think about the long-term. 
but it's hard because, you know, the natural reaction is, Hey, look, I can't think about a year from now. I'm trying to hit this quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's go into goals for a minute, right? Cause if you're not hitting your goals, it comes into two buckets. One, there are just unrealistic targets. I've been a part of those before, whether it's in marketing or sales or otherwise, but the second part is that the goals are realistic and you're just not hitting them. Right. So how do you, how do you look at both of them? I'll, I'll go through the unrealistic goals ones. Cause I've handled this a lot and a lot of companies that come and work with us and say, Hey, we want to five X our pipeline in three months. And I'm like, it's probably not going to happen. So I talk through it a lot. So I'll do it when it comes to just like trying to determine whether or not your goals are realistic. I use a combination of looking at historical performance data and then mapping that against some realistic projection over the next six to 12 months to understand whether or not it's realistic. So when I look at historicals, it's where is the revenue come through up to this point? How many deals are we winning a month? How much pipeline is needed in order to create that revenue? So what are the conversion rates? How much is it costing us to get a sales qualified opportunity? How much is it costing us to get a demo request blended? You can put those together and then you can map them against the goals, right? So if you map them against the goals, what you would find is we only have 25% of the budget needed to hit this if our channels scale linearly, which they most likely won't. So that those are some ways to map the historicals against the future using some type of investment and, and, you know, blended understanding. And that's where you can find an ally with the CFO. So if you're in an environment where your CEO isn't a big fan of marketing or doesn't get it or doesn't get the long-term perspective, put that spreadsheet together, reverse engineer the funnel, bring that math over to the CFO and say, look, I need some support here. We just simply can't get to the crazy numbers we're being asked to hit without something unnatural happening. And that simple spreadsheet math can often be your best friend in getting you from unrealistic numbers because you start looking at it and you start, all right, well, what if we did double conversion? What if scale did spend linearly? But these things are things that don't happen in the real world. So if you, if you can get that spreadsheet together, it becomes easier to have that tough conversation with the people that are setting the unrealistic goals in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then let's say you go through that exercise and you're like, shit, actually our goals are realistic. We're just not hitting them. How would you handle that situation? Then I would say, you know, let's let's double down on marketing. Let's invest more. And then, you know, that's sort of the situation I feel like we're in at my current company. You know, we we should be investing more in marketing than we are because those numbers are pretty pretty strong. So the other side of that, that's your that's your key to putting more fuel in the fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, I've experienced this as a as a marketing leader before in the idea of it's really difficult to do number three when you're not hitting the goals up front. Yeah. Right. Because the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to start doing this web property, earn PR, you know, a podcast. It doesn't matter, whatever. And four days into doing it or four episodes into it or four blogs or anything, someone's going to come over to you and say, hey, why are you only at 60% of your target? You've been like this for the past three months. Oh, you're spending your time over here on this, this podcast. What a waste of time. Stop doing that and start doing things that are going to get us leads or short term stuff. It's happened to me quite a few times. And so having the, it's just about the balance, right? Having the discipline to be able to hit short-term targets quickly and then be able to layer on the brand stuff afterwards. And then having the confidence, and this is the hardest part, in my opinion, is having the confidence that you know that this is going to work in the long-term, you know that it's going to impact your business in a positive way. And having the confidence to tell whoever is telling you to focus on pipeline for this week that we've got to continue to do this to get to the numbers we're going to do next year. And if you don't let me do this, then we're, we know I'm not going to be here anyway, because we're not going to be able to hit our numbers. I'm going to get fired because of it. You know, it's cool. back to the catch 22. The catch 22 is like, you can, you can be fired for not hitting your weekly numbers and you can be fired for not making the kind of investments it takes to build a really long-term sustainable brand. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into some questions. I, I got a couple in here. We're gonna we're gonna read them off, Angelica. If you want to queue up a couple people to come on live, that's great. But I'm just gonna pull a couple out from the chat. So, question for Tom: What is your SEO strategy? Are you not collecting lead captures or just thought leadership? Yeah, I mean, we honestly we've we're a little bit more than 160 million in ARR, and I would say we're just getting started about thinking seriously about SEO. So I'll have to come back to you. But you know, we just Frankly, our strategy has been all along, create really great content you can only get from Recorded Future. 
And that's worked for us. I would say we, we are a work in progress when it comes to SEO, even in our scale. There's a really interesting point to call out here, which is that you just mentioned that you haven't focused on it and you're 160 million ARR. I think there's a huge misconception in the market here that you got to do SEO to grow your company. And we don't, we haven't spent any time on it. Like our title tags aren't great. We drive branded search, right? And yeah. so, yeah, I would love to, yeah, let's go a little bit deeper on this one. Cause I think there's a, there's a misconception that like step uh, one, yeah. you know, zero, you know, 10K MRR, like now we got to go out and hire a, content agency to write shitty content for SEO. I think maybe it's one of these cases where we produce so much content and so much unique research and so much news that it is happening without a concerted effort. We are about to to hire an agency or looking at an agency to help us with this. It just seems to me like this would be an area of opportunity, but again, like would I rather spin up a news organization or be grinding on title tags and technical SEO stuff? I think you're going to get more value in doing something innovative. 100%. SEO as a channel is incredibly mature. And all you're doing is you're taking that content and getting that in front of people way earlier than they ever get in search looking for stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Let's move to... Uh, let's get another one in here. We got something from Chris, Chris Spellman. Uh, we're also in cybersecurity and our marketing source revenue or inbound, as we call it, is 50%. Is this healthy... And what kind of range and mix would you be looking for? What do we do to get there? Yeah. I'll go first on this one. It's very healthy. I've talked to some of my other peers at similar sized and bigger cybersecurity companies. 45% seems to be the number I've heard thrown around with a few other companies. So if you're north of 45%, you should feel good. You should be celebrated. And I hope that the team appreciates that's a heroic accomplishment. That number gets harder and harder as you scale, obviously, but it feels like a good number. What's interesting, though, is if you look at my nemesis, Serious Decisions, another thing you and I talked about in our last conversation, you know, their benchmark data will tell you that marketing should only source 15% or something crazy. Uh, uh, like that is ins- If you're only sourcing 15%, something's gone wrong. Like yeah, that is not the answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the numbers that I see, I interact with a ton of companies that are in the... I mean, I interact with companies in a bunch of ACV ranges up to million dollar deals, but a lot of them I'm talking to are 20 to 200K ACV. In that range, I see a lot of companies that are currently at somewhere between 15 and 30. I don't think that's where you want to be, but that's where I see a lot of companies living. I think that the target for a marketing organization in that type of ACV range is above 50. Yeah, so you said forty-five, and then depending, it could be even be larger if you don't have a partner channel. And so, like round numbers, fifty percent marketing or inbound, twenty-five percent sales, twenty-five percent partner. Or you can play around thirty sales, twenty partner, something like that. Cool, uh, Angelica, you got anyone queued up? Yeah, I'll bring Felipe on first. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Where are, where, are you, where are you from, Felipe? Oh, I'm from Belgium. So, uh, is it I've, Philippe? I've been, yeah, Philippe. Yeah, Philippe. Sorry for the mispronouncing. Yeah. yeah, good to have you here. No, I've been uh, kind of working international anyway. And, and thanks. A very, very interesting and insightful discussion, guys. Um, and thanks, Chris, for your great content too on LinkedIn. So the uh, on the last point, I have a comment. Uh, I think the percentage, yeah, absolutely, it looks very high. But I think we need to look at the ROI, cost per lead inbound, outbound, et cetera, and the ROI on revenue, because yes, you can reach 50%, but you can spend a lot of marketing on that. And the questions I had, because I'm right into it, right? I'm working um, uh, for an e-commerce firm and we have BDRs on one side and sales outbound, and we have the usual inbound, we do ABM, and we're looking right now into the attribution models. And we use HubSpot, which is great. So of course you need data, tools, content, campaigns. My view is that multi-touch, multi-channel campaigns is what's needed. And I used to look at first or last touch point, but now I'm looking more into linear, at least. I think weighted is a bit subjective. So the question I, I am facing here is, okay, we have some kind of strategy on outbound and of course inbound, but there's no connection between the two. And as we all know, it's not about just sourcing, 
because most of the time it comes through the website, right? 50 to 70% of leads, if you do your proper search and social and content will come through the website, but, but there's an influence. B2B complex decision-making is 12, 15 touch points. So I guess my question is the inbound and outbound kind of integration and attribution is, is a hard one. And we'll always be kind of in silos, unfortunately, between marketing and sales. Um, but yeah, you might have another view. Yeah, I got a couple of points, Tom. I'm sure you got several as well. So first one on the on the 12 to 15 touch points, like I don't know who published that research, but I, I don't believe in that stuff. Like a lot of the people that we're selling to have hundreds of touch points. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so like 12, 12 to 15, some stat out there, like they got to see your ad nine times to remember it. It just, and then they use display ads and run them at a nine frequency. It just doesn't, I, I don't like following those stats. When we keep going, another thing that you mentioned was on the, the cost per lead, right? And so looking at it, generally when I'm looking at this, I know that marketing has significantly less budget than the sales expenses. And so looking at that from a CAC standpoint, it makes pretty easy sense to me there. The challenge with looking at it specifically at cost per lead is that it doesn't account for conversion rates through the through the funnel. And so the conversion rates on inbound are going to be significantly better in my data. It's like, it could be a hundred times better, 50 to a hundred times better. And so just looking at it, it's purely a cost per lead number. You can optimize, like you can optimize cost per lead down through Google to three to three bucks, probably 30 cents if you want. You're just not getting a lot of good stuff. And so there's a, you could put a quality metric on top of that or something, but cost per lead is a metric that I push back against because what really matters is are they entering pipeline because sales will filter out garbage there. Tom, I'll let you riff on it. I know there was a, a particular question on the attribution. Oh, let me actually, that's what the last point that I wanted to make on the attribution model. You can pick, you can pick whichever one you want, but the reality is that there are a ton of touch points that will never get tracked. And so that's, yeah. what I'm, that's what I'm trying to help people understand. Like it doesn't matter U shape, linear, first touch. It does. It just doesn't matter. The important touch points are when your CEO makes a, makes a post on LinkedIn and their CMO or whoever you're selling to sees that post. Mm-hmm. And then they connect it to the brand and they're like, wow, that, that person is credible. That person's smart. I like what the direction where that company is going. You'll never get that touch point when it comes to the actual things that you can measure there's an inbound out or an outbound to inbound model that we solved pretty well at a previous company where we would see that people would go outbound in a sequence. And then over time, you'd see someone come back inbound within the next 30 days. Um, that's a motion that I think a lot of people should try to have happen. Basically the outbound motion is to try and get someone onto the website so they can consume content so they can learn more about it so that they can submit a demo and book a meeting with a rep, as opposed to an SDR just asking for the meeting and direct response. So I'd encourage people to try and play around with using outbound to try and drive inbound. The way we solved it in attribution is that when there was an outbound sequence happening, that contact was tagged, that tag lived for 30 days. It could be longer for certain sales cycles. If that happened within 30 days, it got attributed to outbound, not inbound. And to my point earlier about, I want marketing source to go down. I believe that, you know, we use, again, we use Six Sense as an ABM platform. There's a bunch out there. What we're trying to do in marketing is activate our account because we sell to lots of people who are all going to be at various parts of their journey. And what Sixth Sense is able to give us is at the account, here are all the things that are happening on our site, across email, even potentially offsite. So then we can activate the account for the BDRs to be able to follow up with whoever the right person is with whatever the right solution we think um, they might be looking for. That works for, and that they might be just sourcing the name out of Zoom Info. Like that's where I don't care. Actually, the way I want it to work is we activate somebody for some product that we don't have the buyer in our database. They go find that person, they prospect, they book a meeting, and and our funnel starts working. So when I say I want my number to come down, it's because I think I don't have everybody in my database that I want to sell to. That's exactly what the BDRs can go do. But they're doing it with accounts that are already expressed interest. They're not doing it classic, you know, predictable revenue, cold emailing five, 10 years ago, you know, appropriate person style emails. We know they're looking for something because the data says they are. Philippe, you got to follow up. There was a lot of stuff there. (laughs) Indeed. Thank you. Very, very useful. Awesome. Great to have you on here. We got a couple more, Angelica. I see a couple more questions dropping in here. Yeah, I'll ask this one. At a startup, historical data is very thin and the mentality is very tactical. 
Yeah. We're under a lot of pressure from investors. How do you educate them and earn their confidence? Any resources come to mind that are by investors on this topic? It's the nature of being a seed or a series A startup. That's the game that you're playing. I don't think that there's going to be a, I don't think there's going to be a lot of changing the mindset of those investors. It comes down to the founders of the company choosing the right investors and the marketers choosing the right founders and investors. I know that that wasn't very helpful. I'll pass it over to Tom and then I'll add a couple yeah. of thoughts. So it's hard because every, every, every investor has their own model, has their own approach to demand gen, and it's going to compare you to their portfolio companies and potentially might force you down a path that isn't right for your business. Right. So they might, they might be in, let's say they're an investor that really cares a lot about product led growth models. So they might drive your business down a product led growth model, which may or may not be the right focus for your business. So the answer is it's hard. The answer is you need CEO support. So the CEO is the only person in that relationship who can argue with the board effectively. I would focus on building a relationship with the CEO, getting the CEO to buy in to your strategy, and then the CEO should fight with the board, not you. It isn't the board's job isn't to manage the operators. The board's job is to manage the CEO, literally. So, you know, I would pull yourself out of that equation, let the CEO fight that battle. Good advice. Cool. And I've been there before. Whoever asked that question, I've, I've been there before. That I've, is not been, an unusual place to be. I've, I've been there before too. It's a really challenging scenario. That's why startups are hard. That's why I'm glad I'm not at a startup anymore. I, I can't. <laughs> I'll read one here. Uh, is there a benchmark relating to budget as a percentage of revenue for a yeah. one, two million ARR tech company for marketing? Yeah, my favorite, my favorite friend, Serious Decisions, published such a benchmark. The basic rule of thumb is above, you know, when you're in that range, it's going to be north of 10%, somewhere 10 to 20 is reasonable, depending upon how marketing driven you are. As you get to scale 50, 100 and beyond, that number starts to go down from 10 to, to 9 to 8 to 5. I would think that, you know, where you are at that level, you'd want to start being at somewhere in the 10 to 20% range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even at, even at sub, I would say even at sub 10 million ARR, it's driven more through the level of investment than the revenue of the company. Yeah. Um, Cause at one to 2 million ARR, you're working on a hundred to 200 K budget, maybe in working dollars, but that would be one head. That'd be one head count if that was the total budget. So when I've been at a company that was 800 K ARR, um, the marketing budget allocated was like, close to 750k to a million um but we we had raised 5 million or more since yeah. the, at that point a lot of variables going you know gross mm-hmm. margin goes in appetite for burn rate goes in mm-hmm. another interesting metric to look at that I'm obsessed with is not just the marketing percentage of uh, marketing budget allocation as a percentage of revenue but the commercial budget as a percentage of revenue which will combine sales and marketing and so you look at that, a lot of people are, I've worked at companies where the sales and marketing expenses is more than the revenue of the company. Yep. And so that's one to look at because then you can break it out and you can see, okay, we're spending 60% of revenue on sales and marketing, but 52% of that is going to sales. Maybe something else, maybe something yeah. needs to change there. The allocation between, the allocation between those two is what I think is actually most important. And you can get that number in S1. So when you see an S1 filing, you know, your public companies, you can get sales and marketing as a percent of revenue. What you can't get is the marketing specific side of it. But, you know, high growth companies are spending, even at scale, are spending, you know, 10%, you know, which is going to be big. It's to be 200 million. That's a big number. Mm-hmm. Cool. There was one, one more that came in here from Andrea. Are you using intent data to capture leads with LinkedIn? If so, how long until you see opportunities? So we just are starting to do that. So we're able to do specific targeted LinkedIn campaigns based on what Sixth Sense is telling you. I don't have any data for that. We are literally weeks into that journey. But what we're trying to do is use what Sixth Sense tells us about company level intent data with what LinkedIn tells us about people and combine the two. So use LinkedIn to target 
job titles and functions and use Sixth Sense to identify accounts and market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've run we've run quite a few tests with this scenario with multiple intent data sources. Sixth Sense is one of them, but also Bambora, G two, Trust Radius. Um, the thing the the thing to to think about here is that you have the like the data source, but then you actually have the activity that you're doing inside of LinkedIn, right? So on the data source side, for the most part, like a lot of people would say that it's going to be better than just choosing random accounts to fit your ICP. It's also going to be more narrow. So you're going to have less scale, but on the actual activity standpoint, when you're just flat out, when you're running direct lead gen on LinkedIn, you're going to have very, very poor conversion rates to pipeline. And so that might be some part of the thing that you're facing, which is why you asked the second part of the question, which is how long until you see results in generated ops or things like that, you should go and look at if you collected, let's say 50, 100, 200 leads, you should go and look at how they progress through the funnel. And then you should go and if you can talk to the SDR or the salespeople that are following up with those leads, because what you're going to find is the people have very little intent. They couldn't get a hold of them. They don't remember filling out the form. They don't want to talk to you purely based on the conversion nature of the approach inside of LinkedIn versus using it more as an awareness channel to drive your message into the market with accounts that have intent and then trying to convert them elsewhere. Totally agree. Cool. Well, everyone, this has been a awesome episode. Appreciate the, uh, the 66 people that have stuck around for the whole thing. We, I think we got up close to a hundred at the peak of it. Tom really appreciate you sharing the insights. It's been super helpful. I'm sure a lot of people learned a lot of stuff. If you have any other questions, feel free to shoot them to DGL at Refine Labs. We'll be happy to cover them on a, a separate podcast episode. And we will, we will be doing another one of these, I think in two weeks, Angelico can drop that in a follow-up, but we'll have another um, live session in two weeks at a European friendly time. So we hope to see you there. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Hope you have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.